0: This is the Early Childhood Research Podcast, and you're listening to Episode 10.
1: Welcome to the Early Childhood Research Podcast, where we tell you how the
2: latest research can help in your home and in your classroom.
0: Welcome. It's great to have you here. I'm Liz, and I'm the host of the Early Childhood Research Podcast. This is Episode 10, And today I'm speaking with Dr. Alida Lasky, who is an Assistant Professor of Applied Developmental Psychology at the Lynch School of Education at Boston College in the US. Alida's primary research focus is mathematics in early childhood, and she has published many papers and won many awards for her work, including being highlighted in the Wall Street Journal, Science Daily and CBS Radio. For our purposes, however, her most outstanding qualification is that she was originally a kindergarten teacher, so she knows what she's talking about. You can find links to a leader's research site, the Thinking and Learning Lab, plus the written transcript of this interview at earlylearningspot.com. Just click on the podcast tab and look for episode 10. Just before we go to the interview, I wanted to let you know that the Early Childhood Research podcast is very proud to now be part of the Education Podcast Network. There are a growing number of excellent education podcasts there, so if you're keen to find more podcasts to listen to, pop over to www.edupodcastnetwork.com. Now to the interview. Alida Lasky, welcome to the Early Childhood Research Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Elizabeth. I think what you're doing is really important.
0: Today we're talking about one of your areas of research, and that is the early use of decomposition for addition and its relation to base 10 knowledge. When I hear the word decomposition, the first thing that pops into my head is the picture of an apple core slowly rotting away in my garden, What does decomposition mean when we're thinking in terms of mathematics and young children?
1: Well, I think your image of an apple core rotting away captures the essence of decomposition as breaking down. Right. And that's the way we refer to it as well in the mathematics of young children, that decomposition is just the breaking down of a problem that might seem difficult or more complex into simpler problems that are easier for children to handle. So I could give you some examples of the kinds of problems that children might use decomposition on and how they would break them down. There are a number of different kinds of decomposition. One of them that's usually more familiar to early childhood teachers is the breaking down a problem into known facts. So, for example, if a child was given the problem 6 plus 8, they might automatically know that 6 plus 6 is 12, Mm. and then two more would be 14. Right. Another kind of decomposition is when you have two double-digit numbers and you break down the process of adding those together into first adding the tens and then adding the units. Right. For 38 plus 23, you would say 30 plus 20 is 50, 8 plus 3 is 11, 50 plus 11 is 61. Right. So it allows for more mental math without having to worry about the algorithm of carrying the 1, for example. And then the final kind of decomposition that's really quite common in East Asian countries and one that has been shown in my research to be really important for helping children do mental math is known as going through 10. So that one would be, for example, if you had 24 plus 9 Mm -hmm. and your goal is to break down the 9 to get to the next possible decade. Right. So you'd say 24 plus 6 is 30 and then just add whatever's left over, so you'd have 33.
0: So the kids really have to have a good understanding of how those numbers all go together, don't they, to be able to do this?
1: Yeah, they need to understand the difference between the tens digits and the ones' digits and how those are composed to make a bigger number, which is the idea of base-ten structure. They also have to have quite a bit of fluency um, with how to break down nine, for example, into various ways, sometimes five. Or sometimes six plus three and so forth.
0: So that it just pops into their head when they see the problem.
1: Right. And so if they know that they need to borrow six to make 24-30, they don't have a lot of extra demands to figure out if to over from the nine.
0: So it's understanding that base 10 number structure that gives the children the ability to do these calculations.
1: That's right. Base 10 number structure it has two basic elements to it. It's one, um, just most generally understanding that the number system is organized around decades. Right. And so that lets children see the decades as an important jumping off point for that through 10 strategy, for example. The other aspect of base 10 is understanding how the place value notation of numbers reflects the recursive nature of the decade. So that in the 4, the 3 actually represents 30 rather than just a 3.
0: So if we're talking about children between the ages of three and five, what kind of activities can we do with them to encourage this familiarity?
1: One thing that um, research suggests is important is counting much farther than early childhood teachers sometimes tend Ooh, to. Right. That actually for children to understand the recursive nature um, of the number system and the importance of the decades, mm. you have to count well beyond 10. Right. It's not until 30, for example, that you start seeing that it just starts over in 1 to 9 and then the decade word and then 1 to 9 and the decade word.
0: So if they're only doing 1 to 10 or 1 to 20, they're not actually given the opportunity to see how that happens.
1: Exactly. Another thing that can be really important with younger children is when you start labelling double-digit numerals, to be quite careful about doing so in a way that doesn't lead to certain misconceptions. So, for example, sometimes a teacher or a parent might say, that's 12, it's a 1 and a 2. Right. But in fact, it's not a 1 and a 2. It's a 110 and 2 unit. Yeah. One of the very common mistakes that young children make when they're identifying double-digit numbers is to think of it in a way we call as concatenation. Where they think 76, for example, is a seven and a six.
0: Right, okay.
1: And that's lacking the base 10 structure because they don't understand the 70 right. in that double digit numeral. Okay. And I think some of the ways we label numerals for children leads to those kinds of misconceptions, even though we don't intend to.
0: Mm. I actually did a post on one of your previous papers, and it was to do with board games, right? And the way that it's preferable to do one to ten, and then above that, you know, eleven to twenty, and and so on. That's what you're really talking about, isn't it? Like a visual representation, so the children can see that the ten, the twenty, the thirty, so they're building on each other.
1: Exactly. So a, a way the board game like shoots and ladders, I think, or it's sometimes known as snakes and ladders, is organized. Is it? It snakes around. Yeah. Um, and what happens when it's organized in that way, we think, is that it doesn't highlight for children the relationship between numbers and the important role of decades and the recursive nature of decades. Right.
0: Because half the time they're going backwards.
1: Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, 14 ends up above six rather than above four. And so they don't see the building relationship. So we think one of the reasons that board game worked is because of the way the numerals were structured and that they could see that the further they got along, the more tens they the more decades they had passed mm. and so forth.
0: Mm. All right, let's backtrack a bit because when we're talking about young children learning to add, being able to decompose numbers is not going to be our top priority. Firstly, we want them to be comfortable with basic numbers and counting. When children are shown, say, two small groups of glue sticks, they'll start pointing and counting from one and keep going until they've counted the last glue stick. In your paper, you call this the count all strategy. How effective is this strategy and just how young can children be and still do it effectively?
1: This is the very first strategy that children tend to use when confronted with addition or arithmetic. Children as young as two-and-a-half, three mm. can execute the strategy depending on the size of the sets they're being asked to add. So a two-and-a-half-year-old do, you know, two plus one. Right. Um, but it not be until they're four that they can accurately execute it for something like six plus. The problem with this strategy is twofold. Um, one, it can become very cumbersome mm. and labor-intensive as the size of the add-ins or the sets gets larger. right. And second, be really error-prone. So if you're adding, mm. for example, 6 plus 14, mm. you're much more likely to make some sort of just accidental counting error yeah. using kinds of strategies.
0: And then it's very frustrating because they have to go back to the beginning and start all over again.
1: Exactly, or they end up with the wrong amount that's just one off and they can't figure out where they went wrong.
0: So then they go to the next step up, which is the count on strategy. And so instead of counting the first number in an equation, they'll start with that number and then add the second number by counting upwards from there. So what ages do children use this strategy well?
1: It depends on the socioeconomic level. Mm-hmm. In some recent research that um, just got accepted, so I didn't send it to you because it was just recently accepted, we mm-hmm. found huge differences in children from upper-class families relative to those from lower-class families. Right. With some children being able to use this strategy quite well by the age of four, and then some six year olds still struggling with it. Yeah, There's actually a transition in this strategy where the first thing you have to do is just be able to hold one of the add ins in your mind. Mm. So let's imagine the problem is two plus five. You have to be able to hold two and then start counting from there mm. three, four, five, six, seven. So not only do you have to be able to hold one of the add in your mind, but you also need to be able to enter the count string from somewhere other than one. Right. And most children just practice rote counting, always starting with one. Right. So going back to your question of one of the things that we could do with preschoolers is invite them sometimes to start at three, right. to start counting at six. Yep. That would help prepare them for the, using the count on strategy. Mm. The other thing um, is that children take a little bit of time to use the most efficient version of the count on strategy, mm. which is counting on from the largest add-in. Right. <laughs> so if it's two plus five, you don't actually want to start at two. No. It's more efficient and less error-prone to start at five and then only count two more. Mm. And to be able to do that, children need to be able to identify which is the larger number. They also need to conceptually understand that it doesn't matter in addition what order you go in. Right. As long as you're combining them. So there are a couple pieces that children have to understand before they can start executing the count-on strategy well. But it's also much more efficient Mm. um, and so worth really trying to move children towards.
0: Mm. So after this, things get trickier and the next step up is the retrieval strategy, which relies on children remembering learned facts. Just how important is it that kids can remember specific facts and what are the most essential facts that we should be giving our kids plenty of opportunity to learn?
1: Retrieval is actually incredibly important. There's a very large body of research that shows that the ability to quickly and accurately retrieve arithmetic facts not only matters in early arithmetic, but plays a really important role later on in, say, third, fourth grades as mm. children start doing more complex computation. Because what happens is that we can only hold so much in our mind at once. Mm. So, if we're adding two double digit numbers or two triple digit numbers, if we're having to solve every column yeah. and think really hard about that, we lose track of where we are in the right. overall computation. Yeah. It's also really important for being able to execute decomposition that we were talking about, mm. which is a much more efficient mental strategy when you're faced with doing arithmetic in your head. Mm. So the most important arithmetic facts to ask children to start learning are the sums within 10. Right. Because that's usually the way that they start breaking down problems in order to be able to execute a decomposition strategy.
2: Right. So
0: you're talking about number bonds. So 2 and 8? Correct. Right. So if the teacher says the number 6, then all the kids can shout 4. That's what you're talking about, right? Number bonds to 10?
1: Correct. We call them here in America fact families.
0: Oh, okay. But, fact families. Yeah, yeah.
1: Basically, all the different ways that you could decompose 10, all the, the addition problems that would lead to a sum of 10.
0: Okay. And so then you're also saying that for the other numbers, so for 9, for example, you're saying that if the kids know that they can do it 5 and 4 or they can do 3 and 3 and 3, that that's really going to help them a lot as well.
1: Correct. It's going to help them a lot to be able to just think quickly about being able to use mental strategies, but also to be more accurate in complex arithmetic because they're thinking about less, which means they're attending to more.
0: Yeah. Because when I think about kids decomposing numbers when they're young, I keep thinking, but that, how do they hold that in their head? Like when you're talking about, like that seems so hard for them to hold it in their head.
1: Exactly, and, and impacts what we call in psychology is working memory.
2: Right. That we
1: actually are very limited in terms of how much we can hold in our head. Right. But if those facts are so automatic, mm. it actually doesn't take up much working memory space. Right. There's two ways to get to the retrieval strategy. One way is to just drill kids, mm. uh, which is not usually very comfortable for right. our early childhood teachers, and we don't want that to be the center of math learning in early childhood. But another way is just lots and lots of practice using these other strategies like count all and count on. Mm. The more times you've solved a problem using these strategies, the more likely you are to start associating an answer with a particular problem.
0: Right. So yeah, just over and over and in fun ways, I'm assuming. Yes. If we have children who haven't mastered counting all or counting on, should we expose them to decomposing numbers
1: as a strategy? It depends on how we define mastered. Right. In the addition strategy research, there's two ways of thinking about that. One is, have they shown an ability to use it at all? Right. Um, Even though it may not be their preferred strategy. Mm. And two, is it become now their predominant strategy? So some children sometimes will count all when faced with a harder problem that they're not sure how to do. And sometimes they'll count on. And what the research suggests is that as long as they have started to show some evidence of being able to use count on, Mm. it's better to push them toward count on above and beyond count all.
2: Right.
1: Like it's better to just tell kids, you know what? This is a faster way of doing it. You should do it this way. (laughs) And I think the same is true of decomposition. Once the child, even if they're not using count on all the time and don't seem to have mastered it, if the child shows some evidence of knowing how to break down a 3 or knowing some of the twins, like 5 plus 5 is 10, then if you give them 5 plus 6, why not ask them? You know, you already know that 5 plus 5 is 10 and 6 mm. is only one more. So I think the research suggests it's worth inviting them to use it and even sometimes encouraging them to use the most efficient strategy as opposed to just always giving them the freedom to choose.
0: When we're teaching children math, should we be teaching them the strategies that gets them to the right answer the most often, or should we be asking them to chill out and not get stressed? A lot of children get very stressed about getting the right answer, right? So they don't want to try a new strategy because of that. So should we be telling our kids to chill out and it doesn't matter if you don't get the answer right all the time, let's have a go at this new strategy?
1: I think so. <laughs> You know, to, to the one extent, you know, math is about being exact. Mm. Um, and it's important that they learn to arrive at, at correct answers. Mm. But there was a really interesting study done by Bob Sigler where he looked at the kinds of strategies children do who have different confidence thresholds, he called them. Right. And there are some children who are risk takers. And they'll yes. always try a really efficient strategy, but they'll never get to the right answer. Right. <laughs> and there's some children who are have low thresholds for risk right and they always use count all the most cumbersome strategy right but they'll always get it right right and i think what's important in early childhood is, is trying to help children see a balance there mm. uh, of choosing which strategy is most likely to lead to a pretty good answer if not the right answer mm. but also to do so in a way that's efficient And sometimes that means asking them to work outside their comfort zone, take a little risk, right? um, but start getting familiar with that strategy. Yeah.
0: So for a lot of kids in their learning, of course, it it is their personalities that we're dealing with as well, isn't it? It's not, you know, people think you're just teaching kids facts, but children are all so different and they have different beliefs about themselves and they have different, you know, worries and concerns. So as a teacher, we have to approach each child differently sometimes to get you know psych them into using a, a different strategy,
1: absolutely, and I think um, you know with my work with children, there's some children who will react very well to just being told, mm. Look, this strategy's faster. Do it this yeah. way now, right <laughs> um, and other children who don't seem to be willing to take that direction, mm. and what what has shown to work for them are what we call challenge problems. Mm. And it's counterintuitive, but if you have a child, for example, who's confronted with 5 plus 4 and 6 plus 3 and continues to use count all, right? part of it might be because they don't see any benefit to just counting on. Count right. all is pretty effective. Yep. But then if you offer them a problem that's like 6 plus 18, right. all of a sudden it's... <laughs> You might think, it seems counterintuitive because you might think they're still struggling with six plus three, working on that slowly. Why would I offer them a much bigger problem? Right. But it seems to sort of let that light switch go off in Mm. terms of, oh, there are some problems where this (laughs) count all or count on isn't going to work out (laughs) or it's going to take me a really long time. And then they understand the benefit of some of the strategies we're trying to teach them.
0: In Australia and most of the rest of the world, our children use the metric system, which means they're dealing with base 10 consistently, whether they're talking about numbers or talking about weight or distance or cooking measurements and so forth. Do you feel that the continued use of US customary units, such as feet and inches and pints and quarts, <laughs> puts your kids at a disadvantage? And why or why not?
1: Oh, goodness. Yeah. <laughs> it's a whole political can of worms. Yeah. I would say at least not in early childhood because most early childhood children aren't working (laughs) with those sorts of units. I think it could potentially put them at a disadvantage in terms of opportunities to practice these skills and to see other contexts in which the base 10 system is at at play. But we don't see in the research, when we look at cross-national studies, Any significant differences between, you know, the U.S. and say Germany, right? Countries where there's a difference only in the metric system that they're using,
0: right? Okay, so the kids get it in the end.
2: (laughs) They
1: do.
0: It just seems to me they've got. It gives them more to learn.
1: (laughs) It might make them be more cognitively flexible, right? Right,
0: (laughs) of course, just like being bilingual. So what are your top three suggestions to early childhood teachers related to teaching math effectively to young children?
1: My very first suggestion would be not to underestimate young children. Mm. I think they're capable of far more than we thought even 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, I'm, I don't mean to push them mm. necessarily in a way that's uncomfortable, but not to e- underestimate them. For example... Even just 10 years ago in the United States, the standards for preschool and kindergarten were only to count within 10 to 15. Mm. And we know children are capable of thinking about and working with much larger numbers than that. My other suggestion would be to not hold religiously to the idea of the progression from concrete to abstract. Okay. Too often we think we have to start with concrete materials Mm. and only introduce concepts with concrete Um, and the research suggests actually that children can simultaneously be thinking about concrete abstract depending on the size of the number right and that sometimes we persist in the use of concrete for too long and it actually becomes a hindrance for children
0: you say we're holding them back is that what you're saying
1: yeah either because they aren't developing these mental strategies because they don't need to bother when they have concrete in front of them So, there's no impetus, or that they're also not sort of challenging themselves to start forming a mental representation of the number, which we know is really important. Okay. And so, I'm not saying that using manipulatives and concrete materials in preschools isn't important. In Mm. fact, I believe it is.
2: Yeah.
1: I guess my suggestion would just be to think carefully about when you can also push children towards mental or transition from mental to abstract. Are concrete to abstract faster than we might be accustomed to
0: so it goes back to what you were saying before sometimes we are underestimating what our children can do
1: yes that's right and then my third suggestion would be to not be afraid to sometimes just tell kids things (laughs) it's it's not necessary always for them to discover everything on their own yeah
0: yeah Um, i i agree with that (laughs)
1: Like I was saying before that, you know, it doesn't make any sense that six plus seven would be eight. That just doesn't make any sense. Think Mm. about it. (laughs) Or, you know, you're doing it a really slow way. Here's a faster way. Sometimes children need these little influxes of information in order to stop spinning their wheels and to move forward.
0: Yeah, explicit teaching.
1: Exactly. Yeah, Right.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. Because sometimes if you're waiting for children to discover it, some children will discover it a lot earlier than others, and it puts the others at a disadvantage because they're just busy thinking about the cake they're going to have for afternoon tea. They're not really thinking about the mathematics. So just give them some explicit teaching and let them go on their way.
1: That's right. And there's a whole lot of research with older children too that shows that we were talking about working memory a while back. Right. That, in fact, sometimes the discovery process actually interferes with learning because thinking about all the different things that you could be, possibly uh, try or attempt or keep actually puts a lot of load on working memory. Yeah, that's a good point. So your resources are spent on a lot of irrelevant ideas. The children's resources, I mean, not the teacher. Yes, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I understand. There are a lot of different philosophies of teaching, aren't there? And so depending on how we expect our children to learn, it really can change a lot what they actually do learn and how quickly they progress and how much fun they have while they're
1: doing it. I used to be involved in literacy before I started doing math research, and Mm. I often parallel what's happening in math now to what happened in literacy Mm. 20 years ago or 30 years ago. It used to be whole language or phonics. right. And now we know it's actually a little bit of both. Yeah, yeah. And I think the true is same in math. It's not skill and drill, but it's it's all not just a lot of conceptual, you know, discover it.
2: Right.
1: That... What children need is some balance of both.
0: Right. Well, that sounds like a great place to end this interview. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on. It's been so great to listen to you.
1: Oh, I just think but the way you translated that pattern study, I was so impressed. (laughs) Um, And I think what you're doing is so important. I was a kindergarten teacher and I can remember just never having any resources and struggling. And Mm. you, you have, I think you have a real knack. I was looking through your blog of, taking research and translating it in a way that into lay language and I wish I had that knack because then my research (laughs) would get to more teachers so (laughs) thank you so much oh you're very
0: welcome I hope you enjoyed this interview with Dr. Alida Lasky. If you go to the show notes, you'll find the written transcript of this interview, plus a link to Alida's website where you can find more details about her work. Just pop over to Liz's lizasearlylearningspot.com, click on the podcast tab and look for episode 10. If you enjoyed this episode, it would help us out if you went to iTunes to submit a rating and review. I mentioned earlier that the Early Childhood Research Podcast has joined the Education Podcast Network. While this podcast is the only one specifically aimed at early childhood, there are plenty that cross over that you might like to check out. I was listening to episode 33 of the Cult of Pedagogy podcast the other day that I really enjoyed called Five Powerful Ways to Save Time as a Teacher. If you want some time-saving ideas, you might like to check that out. Thank you for joining me to learn a little more about early childhood research, and I wish you happy teaching and learning.
1: Thanks for listening to the Early Childhood Research Podcast at com.